been going through uh, the book of Nehemiah, and it's a great uh, book to be studying in anticipation of our upcoming revival meetings at the end of August, the first week of September, and uh, looking forward to, to that, and uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. To begin with, I read a story of a missionary serving in the the Philippines, the missionary had been there only a short time and was learning the language and beginning to understand the culture there. And she told about an experience in one of the churches that she relayed, was relayed to her by a co-worker. Her co-worker said, I heard my pastor announce that we're going to take up an offering to purchase some sin for another developing church. And the pastor made this compelling announcement. This church building is nearly finished, and they are in desperate need of more sin. And if you would like to make a donation toward the purchase of more sin, or if you would like just to go out and buy sin and give some yourself, let us know as soon as possible. And if you aren't going to be here next Sunday and would like to leave a donation for sin, that would be fine. And I know the Lord will bless you for your generous gift toward this project. Well, the story continued. She said that at that point I was nearly unable to contain myself, and I leaned over and whispered to my friend, so you actually go out and purchase sin here in the Philippines? What a shame they don't have enough sin in your church already. Well, later on they figured out what was going on because... The word in their language for tin was sin. (laughs) They were in fact needing more tin to complete the roof of the new church building. And could it be said then they were in sin over their heads? Well, I guess that is uh, probably for most of us, there's plenty of sin to deal with in our lives. We certainly need, don't need to purchase anymore. And what these missionaries were experiencing in another culture is very common. Due to the difficulty in understanding a new language, they face, were faced with some misconceptions. And just as there are many misconceptions when trying to learn a new language, so too many of us have some misconceptions about the Bible. And here are three that come to mind. First of all, it's too confusing to read. It's too boring to study. And it's impossible to apply. Now these myths are demolished in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I want to use these myths or these misconceptions as an outline this morning as we work through chapter 8. And the first myth is that the Bible is too confusing to read. In in chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we'll see that the Bible, instead of being confusing, is actually a book that you and I can comprehend. Uh, You can understand it. The second myth is that the Bible is too dry and boring to study. What we'll discover in verses 9 through 12 is that the Bible is anything but dull. You can rejoice in it. And the third misconception is the Bible is impossible to apply. And what relevance does this book, this old book have that we have? uh, What relevance does it have to our world today? 
Verses 13 through 18 will show us that there are many ways to apply its truths, and so you can obey it. So first of all, let's look at you can understand it. Bring the book. You can understand it. Bring the book. Verse 1 says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which is the Lord, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now the Bible is not a magic book. This is not a book of magic. It doesn't change us just because we read it. God's word must be understood before it can enter into the heart and release its life-changing power. The word understanding uh, is used six times in this chapter. And it shows us that the Bible is not meant to be confusing, but it is to be understood. Ezra was the ideal man to conduct this outdoor Bible conference. He had come to Jerusalem 14 years before Nehemiah. And uh, he was a priest, he was a scholar, he was a teacher of the law. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, it gives us some insight of what kind of man he was. It says, therefore, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He was committed to personal study of the word. He looked for ways to apply the Bible to his life and he taught it to others. Now, I think that's a great verse. I consider it to be a personal challenge to me because I want to do the same thing. I'm committed to study and personal application so that I can teach the word accurately and with integrity. And so they came together on the first day of the seventh month, which was the Jewish equivalent to the New Year's Day. During this month, the Israelites celebrated the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was the perfect time to get right with God and make a fresh start. Now I want you to notice that this seems to be a spontaneous gathering here. There are no imitations that are sent out. No public notice was given. They came together, it tells us here in verse 1, as one man. They were eager to understand the word of God. They met before the water gate. Now, whenever we hear water gate, most of us older folks, we think of our government and we think of a past president who uh, did something. But this is actually a gate, one of the gates in Jerusalem, the water gate. And uh, it was a place where the water would run through into the city, no doubt. But the more significant than that is, in the Bible, water is a picture of the Word of God. We, we hear about the cleansing of the Word of God. It's pictured as water. The water of the Word talks about in the New Testament. And instead of waiting to hear what Ezra wanted to preach on, they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law. To bring the book. They were kind of... Maybe they were impatient. I don't know. Uh, it seems to indicate that they wanted to, him to come out and bring the book to teach them. I don't think they were going, we want Ezra. We want Ezra. You know, you know, like the, uh, sometimes, uh, the, in, uh, uh, sports events today, you know, they get a chant going up and, uh, and they weren't probably doing that. 
But there was some kind of a, uh, a, a, an encouragement to him to bring the book of the law and teach them. Now, the book of the law was the Torah, which contains the first five books of the Moses uh, called the Pentateuch. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that they started reading down through and they read until lunch. And it says, and he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The people listened to the word of God for more than six hours. We know from verse 18 that this continued on for a week. And they just didn't sit in nice soft chairs like you're sitting in this morning. They listened attentively. They listened attentively. It says they, uh, in verse uh, 3 there, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There's no greater thrill to a preacher than when people listen alertly to the word of God. I'm thankful that we have a church here that responds to biblical preaching. I want to thank you for your attentiveness and the compelling desire to understand God's word. And so in an effort to follow Ezra's example, we're going to have a six hour services from now on. <laughs> we're going to start next Sunday. Okay. Hmm. Everybody's going to say, no, I don't think so. Look at verse four. It says in Ezra, the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattiah and Shema and Anathiah and Urijah and Helkiah and excuse me, Maasiah and all his right hand and all his left hand and a bunch of other guys. <laughs> it says here that Ezra stood upon a, wood, a pulpit of wood. Now, they, he did this so they could see him and hear him better. Now, uh, they didn't have a microphone in those days. They didn't have a sound system. They didn't have uh, a PowerPoint for them to, to look at. They didn't have all those kind of things. He just stood there and read the book of the law, read the Bible. I understand that in some churches in uh, uh, Scotland, for instance, they have high pulpits, way up high, maybe 20 or 30 steps leading up to them. And I think the idea came from this passage. And there was also 13 men who stood there while he read. And so uh, if uh, we could have 13 men come and stand here while he preached, that would be, you know, that would be kind of following what they did. I don't think I'd get 13 volunteers, but uh, when Ezra opened the book, it says in verse 5 here, the people honored God by standing up. They knew this was not just a man speaking. They were about to hear the very word of God. And Ezra praised the great God in verse 6. It says, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. We sang about our great God this morning. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. No one fell asleep in this service. Everyone listened attentively and everyone responded. And then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It tells us at the end of verse 6. The people went from sitting 
to standing and they raised their hands. They shouted with agreement by saying amen and bowed down and worshiped by putting their faces to the ground. And the anticipation of hearing the Bible in a way which they understand totally gripped them. They were locked in. They were focused. They were ready to hear from their great God. You know, some preachers, some evangelists have people stand when the scripture is read. I've never made that my practice. I have no problem with that, though. Uh, it certainly has a biblical precedence. But uh, I've never had the evangelist or preacher say, well, we're getting to another passage of Scripture. Let's all stand up and read that one, you know, up and down, up and down through the whole service, especially if a man is going to use the Word of God. But I think that's where they probably come up with that, to stand in honor of the Word of God. And there's nothing wrong with it. But their task here in verse 7 and 8, uh, the Levites join Ezra in helping to instruct the people. It says there, they gave the sense and they gave the meaning and caused them to understand the reading. Uh, that's what we try to do here at Spooner Baptist Church is give the sense of what the Bible is saying to us. Uh, uh, cause us to understand it. And first they had to translate it from the Hebrew into the Aramaic because the language would have undergone some changes since the days of Moses. And then they had to spell out the application so that the listeners would know how to apply God's truth to their own lives. They probably mingled with the people and there was probably a break in the reading. They answered some questions. They told them how to apply the law. Uh, they're both a public proclamation of the word in a large assembly and a face-to-face interaction with us as a small group. So misconception number one is that the Bible's too confusing to read. What we learn from these verses, verses 1 through 8, it says verse 8, So they read the book in the law distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. The Bible is designed to be understood. Now, let me give you a couple of hints to help you comprehend the Word of God. First, read a chapter of the Bible every day. Grab a notebook and write down one verse that impacts you and begin to saturate yourself with the Scripture. And be attentive during the preaching time. Bring your Bible and follow along. Take notes. Avail yourself as to as many services as you possibly can. Because the services that we have here are designed to help you understand more about the Bible. You can understand it. Secondly, you can rejoice in it. Read the book. Myth number two is that Bible is too boring to study. The truth of the matter is you can rejoice in this great book. We see this in verses 9 through 12. It says in Nehemiah, which is uh, the Tershetha, uh, uh, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, that uh, taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is a holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for the peoples wept when they heard the words of the law. Ezra read, and a small group of leaders began to explain the word. The congregation's uh, first uh, reaction to the Bible was guilt. They began to weep because they knew that they had been neglecting God's word. Another reason they were broken up is because their hearts were convicted by what they heard. Romans 3.20 says, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
The ministry of Scripture caused them to see the beauty of God, the greatness of God, the ugliness of their own hearts. And though weeping is necessary and important, it's not the final message that God has for us. Assisted by the Levites, Nehemiah convinced the people to stop mourning, to start celebrating. The Word of God brings conviction. It leads to repentance, but it also brings great joy. And for the same word that wounds, it also heals. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Psalm 19 and verse 8, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Listen, it is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. Grief over sin and joy in God's forgiveness are not far from each other. The God who convicts of sin is the God of grace and of mercy. It isn't enough for us just to read the word, but to receive the word as others explain it. But we also must rejoice in the word. We look here at verse uh, 10. It says, And he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for which nothing is prepared. For this day is the holy unto the Lord, neither is uh, be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they understood the words that were declared unto them. Did you understand that? Did you catch that? When the people understood the word of God, it brought joy. We can't have joy because God has found a solution to the sin problem. I want you to notice how the people urged urge to share what they had with others. Now, this is significant in light of what we learned back in chapter 5 when the rich were taking advantage of the poor. And we understand that God, through understanding His Word, we will have a contagious joy as we invite others to experience the same thing. You know, someone has said, Joy is magnified when it's shared. That's one of the points that Nehemiah is making here. He says, Eat something good and drink something sweet and give some to the people who don't have any. And this is a sacred day. It's a holy day. So be joyful. You see, reverence and rejoicing go together. Philemon 6 challenges us that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. We can't have true joy unless we share what we have with others. And listen, the Bible and the truths within it are from far from being dry and boring. We understand Scripture. We will become to will come to a place of great joy. And every effort to make Christianity seem to be a sad and heavy and strict and boring uh, thing comes up short because. People who know the story of redemption, people who know that Jesus Christ died for their sins, they can rejoice in what God has done for them. They can be most joyful. And they don't want to keep it to themselves. Let me give you a couple of ways to demolish this second myth so that you can rejoice in what you understand from the Bible. Instead of focusing on how you've messed up in your life, Draw attention to what God has done on your behalf. Some of you have been crippled with guilt. 
paralyzed with shame. If you confess it, the Bible says you'll be forgiven and you'll be free. It's time to move on with joy. Isaiah 44.22 is a great verse to treasure if you're struggling with guilt and shame. He said, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Look for ways to share what you have with others. Who can give something? Uh, who can you give something this week? Think of someone you know who is not a Christian. Ask God to give you an opportunity this week to share your joy with him or her. So first of all, you can understand it. Secondly, you can rejoice in it. And thirdly, you can obey it. Obey the book. This third misconception is that the Bible is impossible to apply. This myth says that God is just out to make life miserable for us by giving us things to do which are unattainable. Well, certainly it's true that we can't obey everything in the Bible because of our, our sinfulness. We can live out its truths, and we can live out its principles on a daily basis. In fact, God's word has given, was given in order to transform our lives. We don't have to make the Bible relevant because it already is relevant. Our challenge is to follow what we know to be true, and as we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and fill us, and as James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 reminds us, it's not enough just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. And that word doer brings about the idea of obedience. You see, as we understand the Bible, we debunk myth number one, which says it's too confusing to read. As we celebrate with rejoicing and disarm myth number two, which says it's too boring to study, we will be ready to obey and destroy myth number three, which says it's impossible to apply. Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator, once wrote, Holy joy is oil to the wheels of our obedience. Holy joy is oil to the wheels of our obedience. To the believer without joy, the will of God is drudgery. But to the believer who is strengthened by the joy of the Lord, the will of God is nourishment. Now, in verses 13 through 18, we see how the Israelites found great joy in their obedience. As they paid attention to what they heard, verse 14 says, And they found written in the book or the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. Uh, they, they discovered what, uh, what the Lord had uh, following the Lord meant. And while they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, uh, at different times in their history, they were supposed to set up these booths made out of branches and they were to uh, do, the, uh, do part of what God wanted them to do, but they weren't following His directions. Uh, there were times in their lives that they uh, didn't do what God wanted them to do. I can think of times in my life when I wasn't doing what God wanted me to do. And the problem isn't that I wasn't following the Lord. I just wasn't obeying him completely. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles and, or the Feast of Booths was a reminder that they were to be called out as a people out of Egypt. 
And when they got into the desert, God told them to collect these branches and limbs in order to have shelter. And God then told them to do this every year, even when uh, they had their homes to dwell in. And so God gave the, uh, them to live in these shacks for a week. They were to go out and fetch some branches and sticks and make booths for their families to live in. They probably wondered why this was so important, especially since the wall now was complete here uh, in Nehemiah. Of course, Sanballat and Tobiah must have shaken their heads in amazement, and they thought, what are these crazy people doing now? And they made fun of the wall's construction, so they must have made fun of these uh, lean-tos that were scattered all over Jerusalem. Now, there were three main purposes for this festival. It was a time to look back, remembering the nation's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when the people were homeless, living in temporary shelters. It helped them remember where they had come from and how far God had brought them. And then it was also a time to look around at the harvest blessings. It was in the fall of the year, and the harvest blessings from the hand of God and then it was an occasion to look ahead. These believers had been tempted to get comfortable in their new city and their new homes. But the word of God said, remember, your home uh, is uh, not in this world. You're always going to be pilgrims here. Your home is in heaven. And after the walls went up, God wanted to make sure they didn't count on the walls. But instead, they counted on him. We need that reminder, don't we? Don't sink your roots too deep into this world. Because your true home, as a believer, as a child of God, is in heaven. You know, as people applied God's truth, they did it with an attitude of joy. We see down in verse 17, it says, And there was great gladness. When people gives you insight, no matter how strange or difficult it may appear, and cultivate an attitude of complete commitment and unreserved obedience, when you obey Him, you'll have a deep satisfaction that you're doing the right thing, no matter how hard it is. And if we truly are a people of the book, we'll live by the book. And let me suggest some action steps that will help you develop an application uh, an application orientation to the Word of God. The Bible is not impossible to apply. You can obey it. First of all, let me encourage you to pray. Ask God for personal transformation as you read and understand the Bible. Ask Him to reveal what it is He wants you to do as a result of what you've read or what you've heard. Avoid the temptation just to study the Bible. You know, just studying the Bible, just uh, compiling information is your goal, is not enough. We, not, we need to expect to hear something that God wants us to apply to our lives. And then secondly, when God reveals something to you, don't put it off. Don't bargain with God. Don't go halfway. Don't settle for spiritual meteorocracy, but determine to be obedient. And then ask someone to help you to be accountable. When you know what God wants you to do and you're not sure if you're going to be able to do it on your own, ask someone to help you and to pray with you and to encourage you along the way. And so we're to bring the book, verse 1. We're to read the book, verse 8. We're to obey the book, verses 16 and 18. The people went forth 
And it talks about day by day in verse 18. Also day by day from the first day until the last day, he read the book of the law. And they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day with solemn assembly according unto the same manner. Bring the book, read the book, obey the book. Now, as I close, I'm addressing, first of all, those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You know, in every genuine revival in history, there's always been two major thrusts, a proclamation and preaching of the word and a responsive mobilization of God's people. And as you've listened to the word this morning, I trust that some of you are ready to perhaps even experience renewal in your own life. Maybe you need to get into the book. Maybe you need to say, bring the book. I want to understand it. I want to, I want to get into it. I want to know what it says for me. I want to rejoice in it. And I want to obey it. You know, it's easy to slip. It's easy to let these things get by. It's easy to neglect the Word of God. Our natural tendency is to head south spiritually. And some of you have lost your joy. You feel a bit dry. And you can relate to the psalmist when he asks in Psalm 85 and verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Are you ready to repent and turn from your sin? You know, there's a town in a remote area of Canada called Walbush. Walbush. And it's completely isolated for many, many years. And not that long ago, they cut a road through the wilderness to reach this little town. It was now has one road leading to it. And only one road leading out. I don't know if it's changed since... The story, I came across the story, but if someone would travel eight hours, they could get to this little town of Wabush. Only one way to get in, only one way to leave. Now, some of you have been spending too much time in a little town called Sin. And with this town, there's only one way out. It's a road built by God himself. In order to take that road, one must Turn around. And the question is, are you ready to turn from your sin and experience the power of God in your life? If so, then commit to understanding, rejoicing, and obeying the word of God. But then there are those of you here this morning, perhaps, that have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of sins. You have no need to purchase more sin in your life because you have plenty of it already. The Bible says that each one of us are stained by sin and because of that we've been separated from God. Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid the price for our sins so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Some time ago I was having coffee with another pastor and, and when I was having... We were done having coffee. He, he offered to pay for it. He offered to buy me. Uh, we, we went to get the coffee. And he also uh, uh, offered to buy me a pastry to go along with it. Boy, that was tough. I have this problem with pastries. I swell. But I told him I'm trying to quit sugar. I was really being good that day, you know. He said he would not tempt me. So we just had coffee and then we had good fellowship. No, I didn't deserve his kindness. 
But you know what? Jesus has done something very kind for you. And it's more than just kind. It's life-saving. Because he paid your sin tab because of how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. All you have to do is accept his payment and receive it into him into your life. Because it's a response on your behalf. Someone has said there are thousand steps between us and God, and God will take all those steps but one. He's leaving the final step for you and me to take. Choice is ours. I wonder this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, are you ready to take that final step? You see, if you want spiritual renewal in your life, you need to first be regenerated. And just as Nehemiah listed a bunch of names in chapter 7, uh, which prove that uh, who the true believers were, so too there's another book full of names. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. I wonder this morning, is your name in that book? Are you ready to take the step you need to take? I want to give you an opportunity even this morning to respond to God's word. In a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you're a believer and you need revival, I invite you to come. If you're not a believer, you need regeneration. I invite you to slip out of your seat and come. Someone has said this about repentance. If we put off repentance another day, we have one more day to repent of and one day less to repent in. I trust that God would speak to our hearts this morning as we close. Let's pray. Father in heaven.